Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And there's this woman I encountered who said, hey, can you help me out? I missed the last bus. I don't have any money to get a cab and I need to be to work in an hour. I lost my whole paycheck. And as I'm there on my last day gambling, I realize here I am, I've spent my whole paycheck. I have a car in the parking lot that doesn't have enough gas to get home. And I'm her. My guest today is named Tara Carbert. She is a coach, a podcast host, and she is also in recovery from compulsive gambling. Welcome to the show, Tara. Hey, I am Tara Carbert. I am a person in long-term recovery from compulsive gambling, and I also choose not to drink or use any mind-altering substances. Brett, thanks so much for having me here to talk a little bit about gambling recovery. You know, I know it's not one that a lot of people are out in the world talking about, so I appreciate the opportunity to shine a light on it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about it. I've only had a, a a few guests on that have talked about gambling. So I think it's, it's perfect to have it again. I think it's been probably, Oh, probably about a year since I've had a, a, somebody on here to talk about gambling. I think it's an important thing for us to talk about. And I'm excited to hear more about your story. And I know that there's people listening that are going to be shaking their heads as they listen to this episode, agreeing and, and, you know, seeing those similarities in their life and in their story. So excited to have you on and excited to get to know you better. Awesome. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, I'm not really sure where, wherever you think you should start, I guess. Okay. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations with the, uh, clinicians in the substance use world lately, curious about gambling, right? And they're, they're wondering if there's something they could be doing. And, um, Interestingly, you know, my relationship with gambling is a lot like the relationship people have with alcohol or drugs in terms of early exposure. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about kind of how I was introduced to gambling and then uh, the on again, off again relationship I had with it until it finally got me crawling on my knees in the rooms of recovery. I started learning how to play card games when I was like five or six. <laughs> My grandfather would take me with him to the VFW and he would play poker with his war buddies and I would be there and he'd be teaching me at the same time about the hands and he would test me, you know, what beats, what beats two pair, what beats a three of a kind. 
And uh, then he taught me blackjack and he would, he would have me sitting by his side during the football games and showing me these numbers he had and telling me how, how to know if his numbers won, what teams I should be cheering for. And he would buy these things called pull tabs and he would show me, you know, how to tell if you won. So I had really early, early exposure to gambling. I didn't even know that it was gambling. Um, he also brought me to the horse track. And then there was a lot of excitement in my grandparents' household when uh, a casino opened up where you could play slot machines like you could in Vegas. And so I knew that that was something that they did together for fun. You know, they would talk about having date night at the casino. And so in my head, gambling was this fun thing. I also grew up in a uh, in an environment where there was a lot of lot of alcohol. I was kind of just the center, the center of many events, family gatherings. There was always beer or booze or both. And uh, my parents were people who would get home from a long day's work and grab a beer out of the fridge. And they would, that was their beverage for the evening. There was always alcohol present at, at everything that we did. Um, my grandfather, uh, he died when I was 15 and, um, he was also one of those biggest, the biggest cheerleaders I had in my life. And so when I turned 18 and I could go to the casino, I started going and it kind of felt like when I was playing blackjack, like he'd be proud of me for knowing when to hit and when to stay and when to double down and when to split. And like I was using this knowledge that grandpa gave me. And so there was this interesting connection you know, to that that teaching from him. You know, life goes on. I, I didn't make a lot of money at that time, but anytime I gambled, I was always gambling with more than I could afford to lose. I wasn't keeping track of time. I wasn't paying attention to what I was spending. I just knew that it felt good. When I was 25, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And at the time I was a single mother and I was in college and I worked full time. And I did not know how to deal with that grief. Same. I didn't know how to deal with the grief from my grandfather's death. And I didn't know how to deal with the stress and the grief of this. And so at that time, I um, I had a good friend who, and this is like when Chris Moneymaker was like, you know, World Series of Poker kind of became a thing right around this time. And I had a friend who liked to go play poker tournaments. And so when I didn't have my son, it was like an every other Every other weekend I would arrange, you know, he was staying at a friend's or with one of the grandparents, sometimes his dad. And so whenever I didn't have my son and I wasn't having to hold everything together, you know, go to school, go to work, I would go crazy on those weekends. And me and this girl, Tammy, would go <laughs> we'd go to these poker tournaments and play all night. And then after the tournament was done, we would pop a few miles down the street and go to the casino and play blackjack and slots. And it was like a, a weekend bender and we'd be in the bathroom doing lines together. And at some point, someone in my life looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing? You are in school. You have a young child. What are you doing? Like, this isn't you. This isn't you. You have these hopes and your dreams and, and what are you doing? And at that point, I just kind of cut it all off. I stopped. I stopped hanging out with that person that I was gambling with all the time. I stopped using um, substances or using illegal substances, I should say. I was still drinking. 
and it just ended. And I found a way to just focus on the good things in my life, but never really got help, never got treatment. And so gambling became like an occasional thing I did, but still every time I did it, I did it excessively for longer than I planned and with more money than I planned, but I could usually recover because there was so much time in between that I would just earn more money and, you know, I'd make it okay. And then about 10 years later, um, my, my grandmother died. My mom's mom died. Um, and she would come and visit me for about a month at a time and gambling together was something that we did. Yeah. That was something that she loved to do with my grandpa and it was a pastime for her. She had a I, I would say mostly healthy relationship with gambling and we would play her favorite games together. And after she died, kind of like it was with my grandpa, I would go to the casino and now I started to go by myself and it would feel like I was hanging out with her and I'd play her favorite machines and I'd, I'd have some weird connection to her and thinking we were spending time together and it it kind of became this way for me to just get away from the sadness, the pain, the grief. It also became a way to get away from responsibility. Just still a single mom and still, you know, working. I worked a lot. You could probably probably say that I was also addicted to work. I was probably somebody who usually worked 50, 60 plus hours a week and also was doing the parenting thing, going to all the baseball games, all that night. It was like my pressure relief really valve. Like I deserve a break. And so that was the place that I would go take my breaks. And a year after my grandmother died, um, I found my stepfather who raised me. He adopted me when I was 10 years old. Um, my biological father died by suicide when I was three. I found him dead in his home. And that was a completely different level of pain that I didn't know how to deal with. And I started going to the casino way more frequently. I stopped really caring about anything that had to do with money. Like money became like a non, it was just numbers on a screen. It was just chips on a table. It was just conversations with stranger. It was a form of entertainment. It was a form of escape. It became like my best friend, the reliable thing that asked nothing of me ever, but to feed it with money. And so I started doing things that were completely out of character in order to keep gambling, excessively borrowing, lying about my whereabouts, not sleeping, not eating, you know, staying at the casino well beyond the time that I should, knowing that I had to get up the next morning and get my butt to work and a kid off to school. I would do things like drive through ice and snowstorms to get there and go back home to get more money, risking my life to continue to gamble. And I was miserable inside. On the day I stopped, I had spent my whole paycheck in just a couple of hours. And I had this flashback to a time where I had encountered a woman, the casino that I most frequently went to. I went to many, but the ones I most frequently went to, there's like two facilities right next to each other that have a shuttle that will bring you from one to the other. And I was leaving the casino one day and, or leaving from one to the other to catch the shuttle. And there was this woman, it's like four thirty-five in the morning. And there's this woman I encountered who said, Hey, can you help me out? 
I missed my bus because the casino, of course, has a bus that brings people to it. (laughs) I missed the last bus. I don't have any money to get a cab and I need to be to work in an hour. I lost my whole paycheck. And as I'm there on my last day gambling, I realize here I am, I've spent my whole paycheck. I have a car in the parking lot that doesn't have enough gas to get home. And I'm her, this woman I had judged so harshly, like who does that? Who in the world would possibly, I would never be like her. I would, I'm not that bad. I'm playing with money I can afford to lose. All these justifications I made at the time that I was judging her. And I don't remember if I helped her or not, but her being in my memory in that moment on my last day gambling was a huge wake-up call that coupled with some thoughts of suicide and thinking I was worth more dead than alive. I had accumulated a ton of debt. I'd spent my entire savings. I had nothing left in my 401k. I'd cashed all that out. And I was no longer able to leave the casino with, even if I won a lot of money, I was no longer able to leave with anything. Like if I won, I just stayed and played thinking I was going to win more, that I would have that same rush that I had experienced one time when I had won a lot of money on a, on, on a small bet. And that last day gambling, it, it just dawned on me that I am her. I am that woman I judged harshly. And then I started to have the thoughts like I would be worth more dead than alive. And I, you know, I recall how learning in my teen years, I mentioned my, my biological father died by suicide. I didn't actually learn that until I was a teenager. And I remember, you know, having that feeling of like, not, I wasn't enough for him to stay. And as a mom, you know, that thinking, that line of thinking and knowing that that's a, a risk for that, that level of depression to set in and ultimately end up with me dying by suicide. If I went down that road, that was enough for me to decide it was time to confess to somebody because no one knew. It's really easy to hide a gambling addiction. People knew I gambled, but they didn't know how much or that I had created all this devastation in my life, but that it was time to make a confession and ask for help. And I did. And I've been bet free ever since. I haven't placed bets on anything but me since July 30th of 2016. Mm, wow. That's that's an incredible story. And I can see so many parallels between gambling addiction and, and substance use. And it's just, I feel like it's like a mirror image almost. Just the I've, I've felt some of those same feelings with, with the drugs and being at that point where you're borrowing money and neglecting responsibilities. And you think that next one, you're going to get that feeling that you had from the first time. Like all those things are so relatable from just my experiences that I've had. And yeah, I, I can totally relate, even though I've never personally struggled with, with gambling. And I, I think I've only been to a casino once in my life and it just wasn't for me, but I I've had those same feelings. I've had those same, you know, at the end of my journey before I found recovery, I was right there with you. Like it would be better off for my family if I just ended my life than you know, continue to cause destruction and chaos and just all the terrible things that we can do to the people that we love. Um, so I, I'd love if you wouldn't mind maybe telling us kind of what that recovery journey was like. You you mentioned reaching out for help and and 
you know, uh, that moment that you had where you saw that, where the, the memory came back of the lady that you had seen previously. And then you realize that you're in the same situation. So what, what does your recovery process look like? Did you start going to meetings? Did you go to some kind of treatment program? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So what that looked like for me was the first thing I did was sleep. (laughs) I actually texted a friend on my way home from the casino and the text was just a few words. So I'm such an idiot. And, um, I went home and I slept and I woke up and called my big brother, just crying and told him he responded with a lot of love and a lot of acceptance and a lot of, um, compassion, which I'm really grateful for. And he said, all right, well, what you going to do? What's the plan? Have you told our sister? And I hadn't yet. And she is a planner. (laughs) I might be impulsive. My sister is a planner. So he wisely said, you know, before you tell her, you should probably know exactly what you're going to do about this. What's the plan? And I know a lot of people who have transformed their lives through 12-step recovery in recovering from other things. And so I just thought, well, I wonder, is there 12-step recovery available for gambling? And sure enough, there is. And sure enough, there was meetings in my local area that I was able to access. And so I made a plan to go to meetings um, for that entire first week. I knew exactly where I was going to go each day. Called my sister. And then at my first meeting, one of the things that was recommended was that I surrender all control of my finances, that without access to money, it would become easier to not gamble. And so that's um, that was a self-protection thing that I did. My sister agreed to oversee my finances. I surrendered my ID, my checkbook, my credit cards, um, all access to my own accounts um, to her. And we came up with a plan to sit down and look at the income and expenditures you know, together to pay my bills. And I used um, prepaid debit cards only where you can't get cash access and those cannot be used at casinos either to pay for gas and groceries. So I had a a pretty set budget of what I could use for my living um, day to day. And I started going to 12 step recovery. I did not go to treatment. And I think this is something is something I've been thinking about, you know, as I continue to advocate for, for, more attention on gambling and and more resources for people in recovery from compulsive gambling. I've been asking myself that question, like, why didn't you go to treatment? Well, I was a single earning household. I was a high earner. And I could not imagine, because there was so much financial devastation specifically, I couldn't imagine not being at work for 30 days. Mm. And the only there's only five inpatient treatments for gambling in the entire country of the United States. And I ended up just committing to 12-step recovery because that's what felt doable between baseball and school and (laughs) my son actually getting ready to go to college at the time. And it just didn't seem like I could be in an inpatient setting. So I committed to 12-step recovery um, and started going to meetings. You know, looking back, I'm like, man, that might have accelerated my recovery because I kind of fumbled through, didn't really work the steps, just went to meetings <laughs> for quite a while. And then my my addiction kind of changed lanes a few times when I was early in my recovery because I, my brain, of course, is looking for some kind of coping mechanism because I didn't have any yet. 
And there was a lot of shame and a lot of guilt related to the gambling. And so I very quickly got in a codependent relationship. I very quickly started accelerating my drinking. I wasn't a big drinker. I was often the person who could have a beer, like I could have a beer or two and be this override home for many people. And I hadn't used recreational marijuana in a really long time, like over a decade. And I started using that again. And I also started working a lot more again. And so my addiction just kind of bopped around and was like, oh, will this feel better? Will this feel better? Will this feel better? And so it took me quite a while to actually, you know, secure a sponsor, start truly committing to working a program of recovery versus being a person who showed up at meetings. And then when I did, like everything changed. <laughs> my whole life has transformed. And I quit corporate America, started my own business, failed miserably the first go around, but didn't make it mean anything bad about me and shifted, uh, stayed committed to self-employment and what, what I felt was right for my life to stay in recovery. Uh, cause work was a big, it was a big, it was a part of my stress that disrupted <laughs> my peace. It made me want to use things. And, um, I started to create a life that I, six years ago, like, I can't even, <laughs> it's like, I can't even imagine thinking that what I have in my life today, um, was even possible then. I host a podcast now. I have a life coaching business now. I love everything about what I do now. <laughs> and I work a program of recovery, you know, daily. Recovery is part of all aspects of my life now, not just a part of my life, but it's it's part of my life, you know, not a part of my life. And it's interwoven in everything that I do. And I'm pretty on fire about wanting everybody in the world to know that healing is possible and that you can create a life you don't want to escape from ever again, or that you'll have the tools. If you kind of get that itch to escape from reality, you know, you'll have the tools you need to escape in a way that's healthy and feeds your spirit instead of robbing it. I love what you shared and the analogy I've heard, especially like going to meetings, but not actually doing the work and getting a sponsor and stuff. It's like recovery whack-a-mole. Like you get, you get one thing taken care of, kind of pushed down. But then since you're not doing the healing and you're not doing the the work, then all these other areas start popping up and I have the same kind of experience or it's like, I got the drugs and the alcohol down, but now I'm over here like overeating or I'm over here yes. looking at porn or I'm over here doing, you know, fill in the blank, like whatever the addiction is, but it's like, I got the big one, but then something else is like coming up and yeah, I, I totally get that. And same, same story for me. Like once I finally, surrendered and was like, all right, I'm going to get a sponsor. I'm going to do some step work. Like I'm actually going to not just go to meetings for an hour a day, but I'm actually going to incorporate recovery into my life. That's when <laughs> right. all of a sudden it's like, Oh, Hey, this thing actually works. Cause I'm actually working the program. It's right. amazing. Yeah. I mean, that, all these little slogans, right. That when you first come into recovery, you're like, what you're a great, like in, in my room, it's, yeah, I'm a grateful recovering compulsive gambler. I'm like, you're grateful. <laughs> What are you grateful? You're grateful. You're a compulsive gambler right now. I say it all the time. Let go, let God. Now I say that all the time. It works if you work it. Now I say that all the time. But I used to just roll my eyes at this stuff. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like, oh, they were right. 
they they were right. And I think that for me has been the power of, I'll just say group recovery groups, right? I don't know that it really matters if it's 12 step recovery or I just care that people get healing. If 12 step doesn't feel right to you, keep looking for what feels right, where you feel like you are healing and experiencing some healing and help in, in those rooms. I mean, there were so many people in those rooms who had just shit going wrong in their life and they're still like at peace and smiling and having faith that it's all going to be okay and that they have the tools they need to manage some of the most devastating stuff that you can't imagine living through soberly when you're not a sober person. And seeing them do it and going, gosh, I want that. Like, how did they get that? And opening up to hearing how they got it. And instead of, you know, that assumption, like, well, that's not going to work for me. Like truly, truly saying, okay, like maybe that would work for me and being willing to try it. And and that's how, you know, I started to actually work the steps is there was some people I really admired in those rooms who had lives I wanted. And I just got so curious, like how, how are they doing that? And, and I started asking, you know, what do you do when you have these days? And, you know, I surrender, I call my sponsor, I sit down with my journal, I put pen to paper, I call, I, I get in community with people in recovery who help me see what I don't see about my own reaction to this. I get rooted in my spiritual practice. Okay. Like that was all stuff I wasn't trying. I was screaming and saying, why is my life this way? Right. And so much of it was because of how I was reacting to the way that my life was. You're totally right. Like it, it, it seems so simple, like looking back at it now, but it's like, just, you know, take those simple suggestions, work the program, call people, get a sponsor, do some, do some step work. Like you said, pen to paper, like it's so simple, but I don't know. It sounds like I think we're we're the same where it's like, I want to overcomplicate this. I want to figure out why this doesn't work. I want to figure out my own way to do it before I've even tried to do it the way that it's intended to be done. Like, I just, I got to be difficult. I got to be hardheaded. I got to, you know, dissect this thing with no evidence that it doesn't work. Like, this just won't work for me. There's no way that prayer is going to work. There's no way that step work's going to work. There's no way that sponsorship's going to work. Like, you know, I have all these ideas in my head and then in, Eventually, after like banging my head into the wall and it not working, and it's like, I guess I'll try it the way I'm being told to do it, and then it works. Yeah, and the you know, I think some of those obstacles for me early in recovery were revealed to me in that pen to paper process. So, like what you're talking, about, I have this you know firmly rooted belief that I learn things the hard way. Well, shit, like I learned them the hard way because I'm insisting on learning them the hard way. Right. <laughs> like what, what is that? You know, and where did that, where did that little belief come from? Where'd that come from? You know, some conversation when I was 15 and I wouldn't follow directions. <laughs> uh, and the other thing I, you know, I had this, I had a lot of pride in, in accomplishing things and getting things done. And a lot of people around me saying, you know, you're so smart, you're so brave, you're so strong, you're so this, you're so that. So I, I, I didn't want to admit that I wasn't strong and I wasn't brave and that I couldn't do it by myself. And so I was just owning this fierce independence 
that I could do it all on my own and I didn't need anyone and I didn't need help. And I had a lot of anger at my, my higher power, my higher power, which I, I call God most days. Some days I'm like universe. Some days I'm like, I don't know, mother nature. Like, I don't, I'm like, I'm done knowing I'm done being concerned with being right too. And I was so concerned with being right then, but I had, you know, with all the death I described, I talk about it so easily sometimes now, because I see that as like, all of that led me to here to where I then could experience true recovery and true peace and true, true acceptance of reality versus arguing at reality. But early in recovery, I was real, real angry at my higher power. And also, um, in 12 step recovery, we say, you know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to a normal way of thinking and living. And it wasn't about the could for me. I always believed uh, for a lot of my life that there was something greater than myself that could restore people. I just didn't believe that that higher power would restore me because I'd had so many unanswered prayers. I had so many, so much loss, so many people that I begged, you know, I begged God to keep in my life and they died. And so I just thought I didn't even matter to my higher power for a long time. So that step two, step three was a little, um, a, a quite, not a little, it was, it was quite a bit of work to, to believe I was worthy of that restoration and that my higher power wanted to restore me. And I had to look for all the times in my life where I was carried through a lot of difficulty and made it through, uh, but I was ignoring all the proof that that was true. I was really focused on all the times that my higher power didn't show up. You know, I'd kind of forgotten about that terrible car accident I'd gotten in where I didn't have a scratch and the car looked like I should have been dead. I'd forgotten about somehow having the, the mental fortitude to finish college in those really, really difficult years when I was working full time and had a toddler running around and a sick mom, right? How the hell did I do that? That couldn't have been me. <laughs> How did I not give up? You know, and so I, I was I was so focused on the evidence that my higher power had abandoned me that uh, that I, I wasn't seeing all the times that my higher power had held me. So those steps early on, it took me quite a while to get to to working on four. No, I can I can relate to that to that as well. I feel like two and three have been some of the most difficult steps for me in this whole process. It's like, I just, I wrestled with them so much and tried to overthink and yeah, yeah, I got hung up on that as well. So I, I totally, totally relate to you there as well. We're getting towards the end of the time here. So I would love if you could, if you could tell us about your podcast, how people can find you. Um, you also mentioned some coaching. So I'd love to hear more about what you're working on now. Okay. Yeah. So I have a podcast called the ambitious addicts. Um, it's a little bit of my story, a little bit of some life coachy stuff on there, but I'm really focused on stories of hope there. Um, it's almost all stories of women in recovery, all addictions, all pathways to healing. So 
what's been um, really cool for me as the host is hearing all the different ways that people have found recovery, which I'm sure you can relate to, Brett, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, no two people necessarily recover the same, but the transformation that comes after in the lives that they begin to live once recovery is truly part of their lives is it's so incredible. So that's, you know, all about the experience, strength, and hope being shared. The other thing that I'm doing now is uh, I host a private podcast community called the Self-Discovery Sisterhood. And that's evolved from solely focused on women in recovery. So it used to be ambitious women in recovery to kind of line up with the podcast. But I had more and more women saying, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm not in recovery from a drug or behavior, but I think I need what you're offering. (laughs) And so I I just recently opened up that private community and I've started to do a lot more work in there of bringing resources in for any woman who's looking for growth um, in specific areas of their life. So from a coaching perspective, I help freedom seeking women really commit to truly going after what they want and stay committed. And a lot of the clients that I work with are you know, they've, they've gotten to a certain point in a transformational period in their life. And they're just feeling like they're a little stuck. They can't make up their mind. Like, do I want to, do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? So I kind of help them make up their minds about what they want to focus on and, and get consistent with making progress on their goals. But when they work with me, then the goals become very apparent to them. And so I've started to invite other coaches in who teach on with a specialization. Like I'm helping people sort it out, get committed. And then I'm finding for a lot of my clients, it's like, well, I want to work on my debt payoff. I, I want to work on, I want to work on a book. I want to work on my fitness. I want to work on my relationships. I want to work on prioritizing self-care. I want to work on my career. So what I've started to do in the self-discovery sisterhood is invite women who teach specifically on those topics to come in and share a little bit about what they offer so that once those goals are crystallized, if they need some support for that. They have access to some resources, um, either through freebies or other podcasts or whatever, to support that next level of growth that they want to experience in their lives. So that's that's a Facebook group, and I have a website for that too. That's the selfdiscoverysisterhood.com is the website. Uh, the Facebook community is called Self Discovery Sisterhood, and then the podcast is Ambitious Addicts, and that's you know all the places we put our podcast. It's an audio only format, so you have to find it on you know Spotify or Audible or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or wherever you listen to podcasts. It should be available. If you're looking for it, and you can't find it. Just let me know, and I'll add I'll add it. But so far, no one no one has said they were looking for it somewhere and couldn't get at it. So I think uh, my podcast distributor is doing its work. So it sounds like any if they're listening to this right now, then they're in the right place to find your podcast because I I don't do video podcasts on on this show. So yeah, wherever you're listening right now, just look up Ambitious Addicts. You're gonna find it. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tara, I I really appreciate you coming on today, sharing your story. Uh, there's so many parallels between the the gambling and drugs and alcohol, and I mean, I feel like our stories were so similar and I mean, from the outside, they would probably appear different, but there was just so much in your story that I could relate to. And I really do appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, sharing some resources with the listeners. I I thank you so much for your time today. 
Yeah. And I will, can I drop one more resource? Because I think a lot of people don't know how to find meetings for gambling and, um, you know, Gamblers Anonymous, though present in many states, doesn't have as many in-person meetings as maybe an AA or an NA, but the world of digital <laughs> recovery is emerging and strong. And so if you go to gamblersinrecovery.com, you can find a ton of online meeting resources uh, both for gamblers who are looking for and seeking recovery or need support for their own recovery and their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. Cause I know, I know that the online recovery community has kind of exploded since COVID hit. And I was talking with a, with a previous guest just about how much easier it can be to find yes. online meetings and support. And it's just, it's some a little bit of good that has come out of a, a bad situation. So I love seeing the online community grow and hopefully shows like ours can also help reach people that may not have found those resources or it could be a building block and, you know, just every, little, little pieces. Hopefully everybody, you know, hopefully this episode reaches one person and that person then can go on to change their life. And then the ripple effect, butterfly effect of that one person changing affects, you know, their family, their community, their, you know, it just kind of keeps growing exponentially. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. you coming on and, and I know that you're helping people. I'm doing my best to help people as well. And we're all going towards that same goal of helping people get to that place of freedom. And, and like you were mentioning earlier, like, in recovery, building that life where we no longer feel that need to escape our reality, where we can just, you know, find those healthy tools to deal with whatever life throws at us, the life on life's term stuff and yes. get through that without having to go back to whatever that that uh, addiction is for, for us. Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for the work you're doing, Brett. Keep spreading the hope. Absolutely. Thank you again. Tara, thank you so much again for coming on the show today and sharing your story about overcoming compulsive gambling. If you guys are interested in any of the resources that Tara mentioned, the links will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.